0: What a lot of people will report when they finally experience some healthy form of non monogamy. Mm. That for them, it is this very big, expansive experience of, like, whoa, you know, I first of all, just the novel experience of maybe if this is your situation, like maybe being in a longer term relationship and dating at the same time and like seeing the different parts of yourself that come out there. Or the experience of just being in relationship with multiple people and seeing the different aspects of yourself that get highlighted in different areas that the self-expansion thing feels like it really rings true for a lot of non-monogamous folk.
1: In this episode of the Multi Amory Podcast, we're talking about identity and how relationships can affect our identities in many different ways. Sometimes relationships strengthen your personal identity and enhance the best parts of you, while other relationships may cause you to feel as though you're losing your identity. We're going to talk about some of the research surrounding identity, ways that relationships alter one's identity, and some actionable tools to help you retain your identity when you are entangled with one or multiple people.
2: This is a big discussed very briefly. It sort of encompassed last week's episode, but, you know, it was it was entwined in your episode, Jace, uh, on external and internal validation, but I was interested in doing a episode on identity specifically because I felt like when I was a kid and when I was like a young person in relationships and even into my 20s a bit, that my identity kind of got lost in the relationship to a degree. I don't know if this is something that you two felt, and I've heard, you know, other people that are non-monogamous and some people that are monogamous just saying like, yeah, my identity is really entwined with those with whom I'm in relationships. And yeah, I, I kind of was interested in that idea and wondered if there were ways to better retain your identity or if that's a thing that we should even be worrying about. So that kind of was a catalyst and a jumping off point for this episode.
0: I mean, for me, in my experience, I definitely felt a shift for myself when i shifted out of using my partner or partners as markers of my identity mm. and it it shifted along with a lot of things it it kind of corresponded with a shift toward a first of all just developing my own identity and doing more interesting stuff that i loved and not being very you know not being as passive B, shifting away from hierarchy as much. Mm-hmm. C, doing less like posting on social media of myself and my partners. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's interesting if I look back on that, that there is definitely a, a number of things that I don't know what the correlation or causation directions are there necessarily. But I, I don't know if for me it was tied to non-monogamy. I think it was tied to some other things going on in my
1: life. yeah. It's, it's funny because I think about it and I think in some ways I've had relationships where that's happened where I've kind of, like especially if someone had a really strong identity in a certain way, that I would kind of get pulled into that. Mm. And in some cases, it's like afterward, it's like almost like walking out of a fog. It's sort of this like, gosh, you know, where have I been the last year or whatever it was. And then other times I feel like I've come out of it with a new attribute and you know, and one Mm. that I've kept and and have liked. So it's it's interesting to look at that the it in itself adapting parts of someone else's identity or just their interests or things like that isn't necessarily bad, but but it is kind of it could be. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about.
2: Yeah, I've definitely met those people who are like such a we in their relationship. The relationship really Mm. is their identity and the family and all of those things, and maybe that's, again, tied to values to a degree, but that, like, their success or failure as a human being is kind of intrinsically tied to the relationship. And I just kind of wondered, like, is that okay? Is that a good thing? I guess if someone, you know, wants that in their life, then sure, that's great for them. But, yeah, it's just, it's an interesting thing that
1: I think a lot of non-monogamous people perhaps don't really feel that way. I think also looking at couples who do a lot of that we talk of like, especially when it's a we about an opinion about something, Mm. where it's like, well, well, we both really love this sort of thing, or we both, you know, we whatever. That's like sometimes that's true, and maybe that's what brought them together, or why they stayed together, because we found that we really have this common love of a thing. But sometimes it's a little more one person than the other, and those lines get blurred of like, who was really the one who brought this part of that identity to the relationship. Yeah. So let's start out by defining identity. Eric Erickson, I just, I can't get over this name. Great name. Eric Erickson, who was an ego psychologist and who created the eight stages of psychosocial development. I did sort of a rainbow gesture with my hand just there, sort of like, (laughs) bum, bum, bum. Yeah, the eight stages of psychosocial development defined identity as, quote, a fundamental organizing principle which develops constantly throughout the lifespan. So that piece is important there. We will continue to talk about him and his theories on identity development throughout the episode.
0: Of course, that begs the question, how do we determine individual identity? What is the self? That age-old question. Is it just a feeling that we have? Is it tied to a specific declaration of oneself? Does it need to be neatly packaged up underneath a particular label? Is it attached to particular behaviors or actions that we do? Or is it something that is just plain difficult to put into words? Does it change? Depending on your culture. I mean, for instance, in the US, much of our identity is determined by what we do and what our jobs are, which is different in other cultures.
2: Yeah, so how the two of you kind of determined your identities. Or, like, if someone were to say, like, who are you, Jason Deniker? Like, what is it? what would you <sighs> say about your identity? Like, what would that look like? And I wrote down some things that I thought that it might sound like, but I wonder how close I am <laughs> to <them. laughs> Oh, you wrote, like, scripts for no, us? No, no, no. I mean, by all means, like, say something different than what I wrote down, but I was just, like, trying to come up with what I thought your identities were. Like, mine, like... Mm i'm an actor i'm emily i'm an actor and a podcast host and an ethical vegan like those are like three things that are really important to me and that's all like who i am or and uh what i do again so yeah in the u.s mm-hmm. that is kind of tied to what your occupation is to a degree yeah. so Dedeker, how would you identify yourself
0: well, it's a weird time for you to ask me that because I'm reading another book by Pima Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun and who like posed this question of herself of like, if I stripped away everything people thought about me and stripped away this notion that people have of me being this spiritual leader or this author or this famous person, or even stripped away this identity identity as a nun, then who am I? What am mm-hmm. I? And so I've been doing a lot of morning meditation about that of if I strip away all the things that I do... And my relationships, or the places that I go, or the foods that I eat, or the hobbies that I have, then who am I? And there's not much there, but that's actually quite comforting to me right now. So I'm sorry you caught me on a day
1: where, where <laughs> your identity is much more open
0: to being like mm, no <laughs> identity whatsoever, and that's wonderful.
1: <laughs> well, I haven't been reading that book recently or ever, <laughs> so I mean, mine would be pretty similar to what you said, Emily, in terms of, it would largely be related to what I do, mm. right? You know, be like, I'm Jace, and I'm a podcaster, and a programmer for a visual effects company. And and maybe I'd say and I'm polyamorous or something. I might not lead with that, mm. though. It depends if, you know, I also wanted to maybe date this person. I think that kind of defense. Or what kind uh. of conversation I wanted to have, even if I didn't want to mm. date them. Just Is that the, because I think, When you're introducing yourself, that's part of the question. Of whatever I say in introducing myself is also what I'm putting out there as potential conversation topics. It's a good point. And so, so Dedeker's So I'd say my identity, right?
2: Or no, yeah, your identity helps you get into conversation with these people that you may or may not want to date. Just
1: saying, fuck off! I don't want to talk to you about anything.
0: Basically, <laughs> yes.
1: That's very neat. Yeah, yes.
0: Just like, don't ask me these questions. Well no, I well I said that you were an <laughs> if you author you don't know
1: who I am. Uh, well I yes. Disagree, yes.
2: Maybe they should know. But yeah, that you're an author and No, you I help mean people realistically, okay,
0: yeah. Realistically if I'm at a party, like, yeah, it's the same response as Jace, where you just like you rattle off a list mm-hmm. of your jobs, right? And that's kind of the polite thing to do, and then people take that as a cue to have, either ask questions or not or find points in common and then we roll along from there so yeah i don't know i guess i lead with telling people that i'm a relationship coach yeah and then it's the slow drip of information of seeing how much they can tolerate as far as things like non-monogamy and positive sexuality and things like that we don't always get that far all
1: right well that's good So one of the stages of Eric Erickson's stages of psychosocial development is the identity versus role confusion stage, which occurs during adolescence. And the major event at this stage is the development of what he calls ego identity, which one article explained it as the conscious sense of self that we develop through social interaction, which is constantly changing due to new experiences and information we acquire in our daily interactions with others.
2: So I found that to be really interesting because right away, it's our identity based off of our interactions with other people. Yeah. Not like the intrinsic internal identity about how we feel about ourselves, but rather, again, the external validation or feedback that we're getting from other people that kind of shapes our identity and who we become.
1: It's like the stuff we talked about last week about exactly. the, the mirror, the, the look, the looking glass self of that this is kind of how we develop our sense of who we are as an individual, I guess, based on how we compare to others and also how we contrast with them. Like, that's mm-hmm. how I know who I am because of how I'm different and similar to you. Whoa. Totally.
0: And Erickson believed that Of course, there's a lot of different things that influence a person's individual identity, and much of these things occur or are crystallized when we're moving specifically from adolescence to adulthood, and that includes things like a person's relationship to others and how those go, just a person's experiences day-to-day, a person's beliefs, a person's values, which we learned from the values episode can be heavily influenced by your parents and your family of origin could also be influenced by your memories, perhaps memories from your childhood, your family, past traumas, etc.
2: Stages of psychosocial development is called identity versus role confusion. And so when an individual has a strong idea of their own personal identity, it does create a sense of self that helps an individual interact with the world in various ways. So again, this article from verywellmind.com, which talked a lot about Erickson's theories. Um, It states that identity identity provides the following. First, self-sameness, a sense of continuity within the self and in interaction with others. Also, uniqueness, kind of on the opposite end of that, a frame to differentiate between self and in interaction with Mm -hmm. others. And then psychosocial development, which are mental and physical health for adolescents. So... All of these things, as Dedeker said, are kind of like crystallizing during this phase, which is really interesting.
0: It's really interesting that it speaks to both sides of that same coin of identity, providing both the sense that I can gel with the people around me, but I'm also unique at the same time. So let's talk a little bit about the other side of that, the role confusion, the other side of this particular stage of psychological development. So, You know, when we're teenagers, identity usually comes from exploration of the self, our ability to try on many different types of identities. And, of course, we see that a lot with younger kids. We've all been through it ourselves. We all went through various phases, I'm sure. I
2: know I certainly did. Yeah, like I had a horse phase, a figure skating phase, like... Your figure skating phase is still a, it's still a phase. It's still That's here. True. Well, it waxed and waned, but yes, that absolutely also is kind of a part of my identity. But then, you know, I had an acting phase that like never left, sort of thing. And so, Does it count
1: as a phase then if it doesn't, if it doesn't go away.
2: <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. And it just like was a solidification of an identity. Essentially, I you, a,
1: I also had a calligraphy phase. Yeah. Really,
2: oh, pretty. any time we would it. have
1: holiday dinners for several years, my mom would have yes. me write all the like place cards, to, you know, to put yes. around the table for the grandparents and and whoever. It's adorable. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, like the ones that I remember now are the ones that stuck around, and so I don't know if I would call them a phase, <laughs> right? Like music. Well, yeah, was like a your a mus- phase, but exactly. there wasn't a phase. That's something I kept doing, and
0: I mean, well, had- here, okay, hold on, hold on. Here's here's maybe. If this is a little bit too vulnerable for the podcast, you don't have to disclose this. But if you think back to some of your earliest email addresses and earliest internet handles, <laughs> what does that You don't have to tell us what they are. I don't want to oh, share I'll tell mine. You what mine was. But <laughs> Does that tell you anything about the phases that you were going through at that time and what identities you were trying on?
2: Yeah, I thought mine was so frickin' cool. <laughs> mine was an Actors Nightmare thirteen Whoa. at AOL.com. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like like the play Actor's Nightmare. Got it. And like I'm an actor's nightmare because, like, I'm gonna take your role from you or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then I really liked the number 13. I was such a freaking uh. ridiculous, asinine person, but I definitely had a lot of fun with that one. Loved How old it. were
0: you when you
2: landed on that one? I think I was like 12, 13, mm, which okay. also hints the number. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Also, I had a. My license plate for many years was actress.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. Z. All right.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: What but about you? Still,
1: too? still on theme with something that's not just a phase, but maybe the way of expressing it was the phase, perhaps.
2: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And like really out out there, people. <laughs> so,
1: my, similarly, my uh, live journal, my name was, was Jace Bass. Because um, I was a bass player. <laughs> oh, cute. I was a bass oh, player. Cute. That's, that's cute. cute. Oh, yeah. And I also my first website that I ever made on GeoCities when I was wow. twelve or whatever what <laughs> was all about a character of mine Death from a like a tabletop role playing game. You know, it's all about like his world and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, didn't yeah. your your brother share that he had an email address that I don't I forget what the full handle was, but it was something Rouge. But it was because he didn't he was meaning to spell rogue. Right. And misspelled it and then he just kept it for a long time. Yeah. All of my early handles were often tied to the media that I was super into Mm. back then. Like very nerdy stuff, anime inspired stuff, or like Star Wars stuff or 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 stuff like that. I guess some of that hasn't changed, but I was trying on some of that much more otaku-ish, much more nerdy role when I was, you know, preteen through teenager. Okay, that's yeah. fascinating. That's stuff that I, I'm always curious to hear about from people. So so we go through this phase, this phase of many phases, right, of trying on all these different hats, trying on all these different ways of being. But however, people who can't or for some reason are unable to explore adequately in order to develop that strong sense of self, they will develop what Erickson called quote-unquote role confusion, Which is a general disorientation with respect to who you are and your place or your direction in life. This really echoes for me stuff that I've heard and can very much relate to of a lot of queer kids who never really got to explore specifically their queer identities or the queer versions of their identities. When they were younger, which can lead to a lot of, I think, really wonderful journeys later on, but also sometimes a lot of disorientation and confusion as well. Kind of missing out on this really important part of one's childhood and adolescence.
2: Yeah, my um, cousin, his uh, kids are exploring their, you know, gender identity and sexuality and uh, getting to, you know, really truly explore that in a way that I I have never personally seen young children get to do and it's really awesome and I feel like they're going to grow up in such a way that like they'll be able to fully express themselves very soon in life and that's something that for myself like I never felt specifically like I was able to do that until much later in life so that's really awesome
1: so then after this phase of the the role confusion and creating this sense of self we move into the next of Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. And that's when we're developing our intimacy versus isolation. And this stage takes place now in early adulthood. So we've gone through our, our adolescent phase of phases. And now we're, you know, from 19 to 40. So he identifies... Wide range. pretty early adulthood is going yeah. pretty far. So we're all still in it. And he says that success during this stage will result in a person cultivating meaningful, loving relationships with other people, or conversely, to be left with weaker relationships and more feelings of isolation or loneliness. And Erickson argued that developing a strong sense of self in that previous stage could have an impact on the types of relationships one forms, as well as the health and the durability of those connections.
0: So something to remember is that, again, this is all just a psychosocial theory But of course, there are interesting things that we can still take from it in terms of learning about ourselves, learning about the ways in which we relate to ourselves and to others. Of course, it's another reminder that it's good to allow our children or the young people around us to explore different sides of themselves to help them cultivate their individual identity. And also, if we ourselves were not able to explore our identities or experiment with our identities as much as we would have liked to when we were children... We shouldn't take this information as, like, it's set in stone, it's a death sentence, there's no going back and there's no fixing it because the ship has sailed. And actually, there's an article written by Gabriel Orenstein and Lindsay Lewis that was published by the National Center for Biotechnical Information, and they're commenting on Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. And I'm going to quote from this article. They say, the sequential layout of Erickson's stages of psychosocial development might initially suggest that stage outcomes become fixed once the next stage is engaged. While there is a fixed sequence, resolution can be a lifelong process, reactivated at various times depending on life events that affect the ego strength or maldeveloped belief patterns. Thus, the developmental stages and formation of identity is an ever-evolving process as opposed to a rigid, concrete system. And to sum that all up, it just means that our identities shift and change over time. They're dynamic, they're ever-evolving, we're never static or fixed or stuck in any one way in our identity.
1: And I would imagine that a lot of people who are later in life than you are or than we are would tell you, like, yeah, I've I've been still a lot of different people during my life. And, you know, there's the classic story of the the couple who's been married for 50 years or whatever, and you ask, mm-hmm. you know, like, what's that like? And the answer is, oh, well, I've actually been married to 10 different people. I mean, they all happen to have the same name and live in the same body, but they all were very different people over the course of our life together. And I think that's that's true yeah. of ourselves, too.
0: Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be moving along to talk about how relationships affect our identities in both positive and negative ways. We're going to be talking about specifically how non-monogamy comes into play with all of this. But first, we're going to let you know about our sponsors for this week's episode and ways that you can support the show so that we can keep it coming for free. to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I.
2: Alrighty, Welcome back, everyone. So how do relationships affect our identity, both in positive ways and in negative ways? Because regardless of how strong our sense of self, our sense of identity is, and how much we like feel All of those things are very intact. We still are going to be affected by the relationships that we have with other people, regardless of whether or not those are romantic relationships or familial relationships, friendships, just the person that you talk to on the side of the road. Like, it's still going to affect you. Maybe not that one so much, but the the intense relationships, absolutely. So, a 2014 paper by Brent... Mattingly, Gary Lewandowski, and Kevin McIntyre, which is titled "You Make Me a Better Slash Worse Person" colon a two-dimensional model of relationship self-change. Wow, amazing! What a, what a mouthful.
1: <laughs> yeah, I read that initially as "You Make Me a Better Slash Worser Person." Oh, <laughs> worser better worser person. Even
2: worser. Yeah, yeah, even like, worser. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, So it argues that there are two ways relationships change our concept of self. The first way is the size of your concept can change. So it can either expand so that you develop new personality traits and make those traits that you already have more noticeable, or conversely, it can shrink your sense of self. It It might also suppress some traits that your partner might not like about you. So this is kind of more talking about those romantic relationships. If you are living with a partner or if you have someone that you're very romantically or, you know, whatever entwined with, then you may either suppress or enlarge your sense of self. And then the second one is the valence of your self-concept can be altered as well, which this means the perception of positive or negative changes occur. So. Even if, like, a negative event in a relationship occurs, it can still bring about a positive self-change or vice versa. So maybe, like... You had a really rough time with a partner, but then out of that comes like okay, I no longer smoke or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, so you uh, a positive thing might occur even out of a negative event. Do you think that or vice would versa. Yeah, do you
0: think that would apply to having just like a really bad breakup or just a bad relationship in general and as a result of that you experience like really nice post traumatic self growth mm-hmm. or you sure. know, positive changes within yourself as the result of Leaving or getting through that bad relationship, do you think that falls under I'm, this umbrella?
2: I think absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, it's interesting because this says you make me a better or worse person, but it doesn't necessarily discuss like staying within the relationship because our relationships are going to change us whether or not we're in them or leave them, hmm. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: like the, for better the, or for worse, potentially. Yeah, they could affect you in both cases, but but differently. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm, well, well, Brent, Gary, and Kevin, you got something to write about in your next paper. So, in addition to that, there are four types of self-concept changes that happen when we get closer to our partners and our lives get more entwined. So, a lot of this comes from an article in Psychology Today called Ways Our Relationships Change Who We Are. It says right there on the, on the cover. So, <laughs> of, of these four things, the first one is self-expansion. So that's new and positive information is added to our concept of self, kind of like the size of your concept that Emily talked about before from that other paper, this idea that your sense of self could expand. This might happen when we begin incorporating aspects of our partner's personality into our own or through novel experiences and exciting activities. Just today, my mom and I went through a Taco Bell drive through earlier (laughs) and i got where, i had where to go to the bank we had to go to the bank and we went to the taco bell <laughs> drive through and i got the you know the hottest of the hot sauces to put on mine and oh my gosh she you give her some? she commented at one point and she was just like it's so funny to me that you ended up really liking spicy things cuz you know no one else in my family really does and mm. i certainly didn't when i was younger and i thought about it and i was like you know it's when I was with one particular partner who really liked spicy mm. stuff that I kind of learned to like it and have still loved it since then. So I was like, huh, that's an example of this, self-expansion.
0: Well, th- this reminds me a lot of what a lot of people will report when they finally experience some healthy form of non-monogamy
1: but for
0: them, it is this very big, expansive experience of like, whoa, you know, I first of all, just the novel experience of maybe if this is your situation, like maybe being in a longer term relationship and dating at the same time and like seeing the different parts of yourself that come out there, or the experience of just being in relationship with multiple people and seeing the different aspects of yourself that get highlighted in different areas that the self-expansion thing feels like it really rings true for a lot of non-monogamous folk. yeah. Totally. So the
1: second one is self contraction. So our positive self concept starts to get lost. Perhaps a partner doesn't share an interest that we have, so that that interest starts to fade. I could argue, you know, maybe also if you're just constantly doing their interests and not your own, also could be a way. Maybe it's not because they don't like it, but just you kind of let them sort of dominate what you end up doing, and you just kind of lose that part of yourself. So that's the other side of that size of concept that was in that you make me a better slash worse person uh, article from me before. The third one is self-pruning, which is loss or suppression of the negative traits of our self-concept. So this actually improves our own self-concept by reducing, right? By getting rid of the things that we see as negative. So maybe in a particular relationship, we learn more about how to eat healthily or to learn you know how to engage in more productive activities and and let go of some of the more destructive or addictive behaviors we had before or you know kicking an unhealthy habit like maybe quitting smoking because your partner hates it or something like that that so there's the self expansion which is increasing positive self contraction which is losing some of the positive traits self pruning which is losing negative traits And then, lastly, self-adulteration, which is adding negative traits to our self-concept. And this can happen due to criticism coming from a partner, feelings of of anger or resentment in a relationship that might lead us to kind of pick up more negative traits. Kind of as a callback to last week, maybe in our trying to cope with those things, we develop some negative antisocial traits as a way of kind of defending ourselves against external criticism Things like that. Or maybe you start smoking because you date someone who does.
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh. I was going to say that. I've seen that one happen before. Yes. So the same authors also conducted two studies that looked at connections between a change in self and relationship satisfaction. So their paper, which is titled... When we changes me, the two-dimensional model of relational self-change and relationship outcomes. Um, there are some really interesting findings.
1: Two-dimensional. Yeah, they love two-dimensional things.
2: Uh-huh. Well, yeah, they love like the quippy opening colon and then like telling oh, yeah, what yeah. the actual paper is. Very, very hot.
0: So in their first study, they looked at 55 adults in romantic relationships. So relatively small-ish sample size. 69% of them were married. Nice. Nice. Okay. And nice. they the participants completed questionnaires that asked questions about their concept of self and their relationship. And they took these questionnaires at two points in time, six weeks in between. So basically, they found that scoring higher in self-expansion and self-pruning... In the first survey was associated so with those greater are like
2: the positive things right, that yeah. we just so, talked about in the four. Yeah, my
0: size of concept expands, and I'm pruning out like bad habits or bad behaviors. So uh, the people who reported that in the first survey, that was associated with greater relationship satisfaction when they took the survey again six weeks later. But then scoring higher in the self-contraction and self-adulteration. So the the Size of your self concept shrinks, or you're taking on more negative facets to your identity. And essentially, having a negative concept of self on the first survey was associated with less relationship satisfaction six weeks later. And they found similar results occurred when they asked people about relationship commitment as well. So they came to the conclusion that this suggests that the concept of self changes over time and one's relationship will continue to impact one's sense of self over a long period of time. And then in their second study, they did that with 147 adults in relationships. 76% were in a what they labeled as an exclusive relationship. So we're assuming that means monogamy. And same thing, they completed a one-time survey about their concept of self and the relationship that they were in. And it was the same thing that those who scored high in self-expansion and self-pruning and low in self-contraction and self-adulteration had more positive relationships. They were less likely to end the relationship, they wanted to compromise and accommodate their partner's needs, and they were also very committed to the relationship. And so, both of these studies essentially show that if your relationship Positively impacts your sense of self, then how you feel about the relationship will also be positively affected. You're also going to be more likely to treat your partner better and want to continue to cultivate and maintain the relationship. I I think this speaks to, I mean, I don't know, I feel like I always toss out this very sometimes trite aphorism about relationships being about us trying to lift each other up and help make each other into better human beings, but it seems like there's something to that that holds water as far as if yeah. we feel like our relationship is helping us to become better people and make our identity closer to something that we want to be, we're going to be happier with the relationship.
1: It's science. Great, absolutely. It's
0: there, it's science. Done. Yeah. yeah,
1: next time, next time you whip say. out that aphorism, Dedeker, you pause for a moment then you go, it's science. And then people will be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess I should it's take beautiful. it serious. <laughs>
0: I'll whip that out with my clients. It'll go over great. It's science. I'm sure.
2: So, something that we're going to talk a little bit more about in the bonus episode is this concept called human giver syndrome, which is essentially the fact that women and people with marginalized identities are more likely to be givers in relationships versus takers in relationships, Uh, and those in more privileged positions men and people with more privileged identities are going to be more takers so uh, yeah we'll get more into that into the up into the bonus episode but basically those who are the human givers are more in a support role than their privileged partners and those privileged partners are essentially more likely to take up space feel emboldened to achieve their goals they'll expect, you know, a very much giver role from their partners, that they are there to support them and to lift them up in various ways. So this is just something I wanted to throw out there, because if you are, you know, in a privileged position in a variety of ways in your own personal identity, then definitely maybe take a look at this in your own relationship and work towards minimizing oppression and patriarchy and all of that stuff in your own relationships.
0: Yeah, so that seems to suggest that also the identity that you already have before entering the relationship can also influence the role that you end up taking on in the relationship.
2: In the relationship, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something to be aware of. Even before we like cultivate our own identities, we simply like have an identity by being who we are when we come out of the womb. Mm -hmm.
1: It, It also makes me think about from last week when we were talking about one of the ways of coping with you know, a fear of abandonment or not being loved is to become a people pleaser. And Mm -hmm. I think this one is interesting to look at it in this concept then of, of like, if you're minimizing yourself and, you know, getting rid of positive traits and sort of not expressing yourself for the sake of your partner, that not only is that you're just losing your sense of self, but also, according to this research, being less likely to be happy in the relationship and less likely to stay in it. So you're also kind of, even though you might think you're doing it to sort of serve this relationship, it might actually not be. It might ultimately. It, it might actually be yeah, leading I, to its downfall. And similar it's really good to point. what Emily was saying is to be aware if you're on the other side of that, not only might your partner not be aware that they're having that tendency, but you're also probably not aware of, yeah, of like Emily said, how much space you take up, or how much more dominant your preferences might be, that to you that might just seem like, oh, if my partner's just going along with this, they must just like these things too, or they must want that, and to kind of be aware of that, and have more intentional conversations, and be more aware of trying to make that more equal, because again, that will help the satisfaction of your relationship, and potentially help it to last.
2: Just relationships can cause a person to lose themselves, but on the flip side, they can cause lasting and healthy change in a person's identity and on their life so i was super curious as well to explore whether or not non-monogamy would allow an individual to sort of maintain their personal identity more than if they were in a monogamous relationship i i didn't know if there was anything out there regarding this and so we looked some stuff up but before we get to that i kind of have a question for the two of you that do you feel as though you two have been able to maintain your personal identity more now that you're engaged in polyamory than when you were
1: in monogamous relationships. Overall, I would say yes. <laughs> I think it's varied by relationship, but, but overall, mm. I would say the trend would be yes.
0: For some reason, the question that comes to mind for me is, at any point in time, if I were to go on a first date if I was going to go into the dating market and market myself as an interesting, cool, fun person, do yeah, I feel uh-huh. like I have a my own personal cool identity? Person, yeah. yeah, then yes. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I don't know. I, but, but then again, like, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot about people in much more traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships where I, I think that sometimes we lose a sense of needing to necessarily be interesting, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It. I mean, once we're it, in the like, relationship. Yes, yeah, of needing to pursue our own hobbies, our own interests, or even our own friendships, or our own support systems outside of the relationship. And I think that those are things that when we lose those things, those do start to foster sometimes a lost sense of identity. And so I can at least appreciate that in my experience in non-monogamous relationships, it's felt a little bit easier to grasp those things, to grasp kind of doing my own thing or having my own friends, having other partners, having other support networks. Do I think that it's only polyamory that's led to that? Not necessarily, but but I think that, I mean, like we were saying earlier, I do think that there's a certain subset of non-monogamous values, like let's say independence and autonomy That, Mm -hmm. I think, fosters and encourages people to not just get stuck in the couple identity.
2: Yeah. Well, we're about to talk about that with some research.
0: Yeah. So, we couldn't find any, like, empirical studies on the maintenance of independence within non-monogamous relationships or the maintenance of identity independence, but... We did find an academic paper called Investigation of Consensually Non-Monogamous Relationships, Theories, Methods, and New Directions. And this was done by Terry Conley, Jess Matzik, Amy Moores, and Ali Ziegler. And the paper suggested that personal independence and fulfillment of personal needs distinguishes polyamorous relationships from monogamous ones, but they also clarified that this needs further research. This is back in 2017. And they cite clinical psychologist and author Deborah Annapol. And she says, quote, polyamorous relationships tend to put more emphasis on allowing for individual autonomy, and if it's important to you to maintain a sense of yourself as an individual, in addition to any group or couple identity you might adopt, polyamory could be right for you.
1: Yeah, and I think that that does seem to track with what we've experienced ourselves, and I feel like I have seen that in other people as well. I think especially Mm -hmm. if you are someone who tends to let your identity get subsumed by your partner, that maybe, especially in that case, that it just kind of helps open that up and, and keeps you thinking a little bit more about how interesting you are and kind of what you're doing your, yourself as well, instead of just how you relate to that one person. We also have an article called Monogamy, Non-Monogamy, and Identity by Christine Overall, this was from the journal Hypatia, which is a peer-reviewed feminist philosophy journal that was started in the 80s. And first a quick caveat, this is an older piece and it it feels like an older piece when you read it. It's you know, even though it's in a peer-reviewed feminist philosophy journal, it's still super heteronormative and even though it talks about lesbian relationships, it still relies very heavily on male-female gender binary as a conceptual framework that everything's based on top of. And even though the article is very gendered, it does still provide a useful starting point to talk about how our understanding of sex is gendered, and how that, in turn, can influence our experience of monogamy and non-monogamy. So it examines the construction of the female self in Western society, and argues that this self is largely constructed in relation to its sexual partners unlike the male self which is kind of built and identified around itself rather than just in relation to the sexual partners and that this right. is largely the result of patriarchy and you know Emily started touching on this earlier when she was talking about the the human giver syndrome it very much seems related to that
2: yeah so a quote from the article is women, I suggest, are generally expected to incorporate the sexual partner into their own identity. The social construction of women to encompass those with whom they are sexual is reinforced for heterosexual women by the definition of the heterosexual couple as the building block of the culture. So the author is examining the influence of monogamous and non-monogamous pairings. And so they argue essentially that this way of sexual relating so that if you get kind of trapped and sucked into your partner's identity simply because they are your sexual partner, they're the person that you're entwined with, uh, because women are socialized to sort of do this and expand their sense of self just to incorporate the person that they're matched with. That this is bad for women, this is bad for people in general, it can create emotional turmoil for the monogamous female partner. But... Uh, this author essentially says that the solution is not to adapt a more masculine or individualist sense of self because that can result in a loss of intimacy, but rather the solution overall seems to align pretty closely with things like relationship anarchy, which is just to focus on other people, focus on your friends, focus on building relationships outside of that one main, you know, sexual relationship that you may have. So, include non-sexual relationships in your identity make sure that they are equally intimate and critical to your sense of self so just invest in your friends Mm -hmm. and it's cool i mean this essentially provides a concrete solution to this construct of femininity in the west and we talk about non-monogamy in this way that it gives us like more room to love and we can love just more than one person And we can consider things like non-sexual relationships and non-romantic love as part of the development of our sense of self. So even though she does it in this fairly gendered way, I appreciate the fact that she does get into talking about how important it is to invest in your friends and invest in those relationships that aren't just your romantic partner.
0: So as we close here, let's talk about some actionable tools On how to actually maintain your identity in a relationship, whether that's a relationship with one person, with multiple people, anything in between. So we pulled some resources from an article entitled Five Ways to Ensure You Maintain Your Identity in a Relationship. And that includes a lot of stuff that we've already covered in the episode. Things like continue to see the friends that you had before your relationship. This is so, so, so important. We've talked on the show so many times about Losing friends, essentially, once they're in a a committed exclusive relationship or once they get married, that they just disappear and never to be heard from again. It includes things like pursue the personal projects that define you or that excite you. Focus on your own personal development. Go ahead and take a weekend away without your significant other. This doesn't have to necessarily be a whole weekend away, but it could involve things like going to see a movie that you want to see by yourself or with your friends, if your significant other doesn't want to, still making plans with your friends or with other partners, even if, let's say, I mean, I think that it's easiest for people to kind of lose their sense of identity, often with a more traditional like cohabiting or live-in partner or live-in life partner, things like that. And so that's why things like other partners can be great for this as well. And lastly, don't feel guilty about Saying no, whether that's no to a hobby, no to a particular activity, no to something that your partner likes, but that you don't like. It's okay. You know, being able to say no is what helps you preserve your identity as well.
1: I think a a part of that saying no, and this is just something that's kind of been on my mind about some other people that I care about and some conversations I've been having, is being able to say no because you don't want to. And that that's to just be like, no, I'd rather not like you should totally do that. That sounds great. I just don't want to go watch that movie or I don't want to go do that activity versus the sort of, well, okay, I heard I should say no to these things. So it's like, oh no, I've got a lot of stuff to do or, oh, I'm supposed to call. So, and so like having to come up with an excuse that I think part of the benefit of being able to say no and communicate that in a compassionate way to your partner. And you know, that, It gives them practice learning how to accept your no as well, but is that it's also a way for them to get to understand you better and to have more of that compromise Mm -hmm. and sort of give them the tools to help you not lose yourself as well. And if they're not willing to support that, then we've got bigger things to look at in this relationship.
0: Yeah. So ultimately, you know, some of the tenets of something like solo polyamory can be a good example to follow in terms of maintaining your own identity in a relationship, which After all, that's really what solo polyamory tends to be at its core. It's maintaining the sense of autonomy, independence, and individuality while also having relationships with other people.
1: There's one more article we wanted to share that has some really cool tools and tips and things to help you identify your sense of self and how to keep that. These come from the same article we talked about earlier in the episode from Very Well Mind and talks about how to strengthen your identity and discusses four things to talk about. So number one is to identify your values. Hey, guess what? Multi Multiamory did an episode on this. It's 319. <laughs> really? You should go check it Not out. Not long ago. <laughs> Not that long ago. So check out 319 if you haven't already to figure out you know, what it is that moves you, what it is that drives you, what's important to you. And this can help you maintain your identity and have conviction about your decisions regardless of who else is shaping your life. Doesn't mean they can't shape it, but it gives you a better sense of where you're coming from in that. Part number two is spend time alone to get to know yourself better. This one is especially important if you live with a partner or if you just spend all of your free time with a loved one. Just make sure to incorporate alone time into your week so that you can rest, so that you can recharge, focus on just getting to know yourself, sort of intentionally giving yourself a space to be a little bit bored with yourself to then find the things that you want to do and you know find what matters to you and have that reset time where you're not making decisions about how you conduct yourself and what you do based on what you think someone else will think of that and really just having that kind of reset time with yourself so that you can bring your best self to your relationship as well in addition to just helping you maintain your identity.
2: So the next one is practice self-compassion. So just be gentle with yourself and understand that you, as we said before, are an ever-changing and ever-evolving human being. And so, you know, challenges, hardships, things like that are going to occur. And it's important that you offer yourself some love and some grace and do things like self-soothing techniques, self-care nights, meditation, yoga, masturbation, things like that. That's all great, and that can help you strengthen your identity. And then also become skilled at things you enjoy. So hobbies are fantastic. Go learn a new skill. Uh, Even if you're in a relationship, just take time to go out and practice your own hobbies that are separate from the hobbies of your partner. It's fun to do things together, but it's also really fun to cultivate new skills on your own. And so have, you might find a new friend, meet a new person, and to have something, something to, to talk to about. Share.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's If you do something yeah. separate, you have more stuff to talk about with your partner, too, which is it's really true. exciting.
2: It's a very good point. Absolutely. It's super important. So this was our giant dive into a bunch of research on identity and some actionable tools, things like that. We hope that you got a lot out of this episode. And we're really curious to hear about you and your identities and how you identify yourself and how that's kind of shaped yourself in your relationships. So in the bonus, we are going to talk about the human giver syndrome like we spoke about before and also the superwoman schema. So our call to action question, which will be on our Instagram stories today, is how do you maintain your personal identity in your relationships? We'd love to hear your answers to that. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Babanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schennewark and Carson Collins. Research for this episode was done by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.